to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com okay i know today's topic is a little more on the serious side so don't forget to take care of yourself after by checking out the awesome advertisers and sweet discounts on my favorite products Firstly, get that 30-day free extended trial with Dipsy at dipsystories.com slash S and S. Dipsy Stories is an app full of sexy audio stories, and now they even feature new written stories. They have a diverse selection so you can explore your fantasies in a shame-free way. They release new content every week, and even if you're not wanting to get in the sexy mood, remember you can also wind down to their sleep sessions before bed, nap, or just self care time. I am a huge fan of Dipsy, and I am so excited to check out some of their new written content. Remember, we all need ways to invite desire into our lives, so don't just depend on your partner to turn you on. For listeners of the show, Dipsy, again, is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S and S. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash S a-N-D-S, dipsystories.com slash S and S. And while you're at it, check out my favorite tools from Satisfier. Satisfier is offering our lucky listeners 30% off any Satisfier when you go to satisfier.com and enter code S and S 30 at checkout. Sometimes my intention in using my Satisfier is just for pleasure and fun and escape from reality. Sometimes it's to help me feel better in my body. And sometimes it's just an extra tool to use with a partner. The options are endless. Satisfier makes beautiful vibrators and air pulse stimulators with cutting edge technology at pretty affordable prices, especially with that discount. Satisfier has Bluetooth abilities so you can connect to your device and even share it with a partner. In these crazy times, distance often disconnects people, but Satisfier's app lets you control each other's pleasure devices, privately message, and see each other's responses in real time. And get this, you can even fuck your favorite song. The music play feature allows you to connect to Apple Music or Spotify, and your connected device will respond to the beat of the music. Or if your favorite song is your partner's voice, the ambient sound feature will pick up the vibes of their voice. Right now, I'm really liking the dual pleasure, but seriously, each new device that comes out is even better experience for me. So Satisfier, again, is offering 30% off any Satisfier when you go to Satisfier.com and enter code S&S30 at checkout. Again, if you're looking for one of your favorite new devices, go to S-A-T-I-S-F-Y-E-R.com and use code S&S30 for 30% off. Okay, lastly, if you just want some amazing lube refills, remember to check out UberLube. UberLube is a luxurious high-grade silicone lubricant made from clean, body-friendly ingredients. It's just silicone with a little vitamin E. The vitamin E leaves a velvety finish that actually moisturizes your skin. And right now, they're offering listeners that 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. UberLube is for everyone. Thousands of doctors recommend UberLube as their go-to solution for patients experiencing dryness. Remember to go to a doctor, obviously, if you're worried about dryness. But with UberLube's simple ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to other lubricants. But also remember that dryness doesn't have to mean that anything is wrong. You can be totally aroused and feeling desire, and sometimes your body just needs a little extra help. So if you're also a human being, invest in some lube. 
Uberlube offers long-lasting performance when you want it, then quickly dissipates without leaving a sticky residue. Feels like a nice moisturizer whenever you're finished. I have one all over my house, on my purse, on my bedside table. Um, I even sometimes just use it as a moisturizer for my hands. Um, and right now they're offering listeners special 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use promo code S&S at uberlube.com. Now back to the episode. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. This episode contains material that may be triggering to some. I'm going to start this episode a little differently with some current news and research on a very taboo and stigmatized topic, one that has been covered on the podcast before. That topic is minor attraction, defined as the predominant sexual and or romantic attraction to people under the age of consent. This episode will include information about a recent controversy in the news surrounding research about minor attraction and sexual abuse prevention. Then I will feature an interview with a minor attracted person. I know that this topic can be nuanced, scary, complex, and bring up many feelings, so I encourage you to take care of yourself, and I hope that you will listen with an open mind. This last week, a researcher named Dr. Alan Walker at Old Dominion University was under fire and the victim of bullying, harassment, and death threats. They were also placed on administrative leave from their professorship position in the Department of Criminology and Social Justice after an interview they gave at a child abuse prevention conference with an organization named Prestatia. I will now read a summary of what happened as written in an article and interview with Alan Walker with online news source Jezebel, written by Rich Jezwiak. Thank you to Rich for letting me feature and read your article. Here we go. Professor on leave after comments about people attracted to minors, quote, it's frustrating to be misunderstood. Old Dominion University's Alan Walker is on administrative leave after their comments about the stigma minor attracted people face by Rich Jezwiak. Alan Walker, an assistant professor of sociology and criminal justice at Old Dominion University, was placed on leave this week after backlash regarding their research and ideas on what they refer to as minor attracted people, or MAPs. Walker discussed in a recent interview their preference for the term minor attracted people over pedophile and why the stigma around the issue is a barrier to treatment, which was interpreted by some, particularly on the right, as normalizing pedophilia. Walker's research is premised on differentiating between those people who find themselves attracted to minors and those who act on it, and the former are being conflated with the latter, even in this current controversy. It's frustrating to be misunderstood, Walker said in a phone interview Thursday. I do think that people believe that I'm saying something that I'm certainly not. Walker's work in this arena has long been known to the university, and it provided the basis of a book they published earlier this year, A Long Dark Shadow, Minor Attracted People and Their Pursuit of Dignity, which was based on a study Walker conducted of 42 subjects who expressed attraction to underage people, but who said they had not abused any. Walker's work repeatedly distinguishes between those with unwanted attraction to minors and sex offenders, and Walker unequivocally condemns child abuse. In fact, the whole goal of this research is to protect children, Walker said. In their book, and elsewhere, Walker deliberately avoids the term pedophiles for a few stated reasons. 
One is that pedophile technically refers to people who have attractions to prepubescent children, and Walker's purview is, quote, inclusive of individuals attracted to all age ranges of minors. Another is that the online group Before You Act has stated its preference for the term MAP over pedophile. The term pedophile, in Walker's estimation, has come to be synonymous with abuser, thereby threatening to convolute the very aim of their work. Walker writes, The word pedophile conjures several distinct images in the contemporary imagination. Perhaps a faceless man behind a computer or a stranger lurking in a dimly lit corner. We imagine that they all are predators of small children prowling in playgrounds or online waiting to strike. This assumption causes us to decry pedophiles as dangerous, as monsters, as sex offenders and child molesters. This assumption kept a sighted MAP named Cameron from disclosing his attractions to others. This assumption, I, arg I argue throughout the book, propagates the danger to children that we all fear. Pedophile, then, distracts from the point. There are people populating the online forums Before You Act and Verped, virtuous pedophiles, from which Walker procured their samples, who claim to be managing and are struggling with an attraction that, if acted upon, could cause devastating, perhaps irreparable harm to a young person. Citing research, Walker's book states that not all pedophiles commit sexual offenses, and many to most of those who do commit sexual offenses against children are not pedophiles. Their focus is distinct and nuanced. But attempting to reroute distraction has caused its own distraction. After the child protection organization, Prestatia Foundation, published an interview with Walker earlier this month in which they outlined ideas presented in their book, a backlash erupted with accusations that Walker's aim was to normalize pedophilia. Somewhat surreally, this led to Walker's academic rhetoric and administrative leave being covered on local Norfolk, Virginia news. Meanwhile, a graphic on Tuesday's episode of Tucker Carlson Tonight read, The Left's Depraved New Low. Walker said the backlash began when the website 4W, Fourth Wave for Women, a feminist news on issues that matter, reads its tagline, aggregated a clip from their interview with Prostatia. The post's headline, Non-binary university instructor calls to destigmatize pedophilia, referred to Walker's non-binary transgender identity in scare quotes, and the text did not reflect their preferred pronouns. From there, Walker said, the post circulated in right-wing conspiracy forums and was inflamed by partisan trolls on social media. Thereafter, Walker started receiving online harassment, including death threats and emails that were anti-LGBTQ and anti-Semitic in nature. I've been attacked in numerous ways, they said. To me, it's part of this larger partisan attack on academic freedom, and it's unfortunate because it's going to have a really chilling effect on anyone studying any controversial subjects, but especially this subject, which is really important. The whole goal of this research is to protect children, and so now a lot of people who do this research of trying to protect children, trying to develop new strategies around this, they're getting scared. Well, should I be doing this research? That's not good for anyone. During our conversation, Walker, who is currently on paid leave and off campus, wanted to make it clear that these are my personal views and perspectives and they do not represent those at the university. One of the focal points of the outrage is Walker's notion that stigma is a barrier to treatment for people who are attracted to minors. Yeah, who would want to stigmatize pedophiles? Carlson smarted sarcastically during his segment on Walker. In their book, Walker acknowledges the common wisdom that such stigma is a good thing. 
the question that may naturally arise is, why should we want minor attracted people to feel less stigma? Walker explained precisely why they feel this way to Jezebel. Under the current system, people are afraid to reach out for help because they're afraid of the reaction that they might encounter, they said. And so, if they're at risk of offending, the whole situation makes things even way more dangerous for everyone. My research shows that when they are able to contact a therapist for help or someone else, then they are less likely to act on their feelings. In other words, if naming this attraction is enough to set off alarms and perhaps invite condemnation or even a stronger reaction, people are less likely to admit it. And if they're not admitting it, they're not getting help. This is how stigma operates. But the popular conception is that abuse necessarily follows attraction, and so the stigma itself is considered protection. Meanwhile, abuse persists. While pundits on Fox News wring their hands over Walker's rhetoric normalizing pedophilia, every nine minutes Child Protective Services finds evidence for or substantiates claims of child sexual abuse, according to Rain. Clearly, our current model isn't working. I do this work because I want the world to be a safer place, said Walker, who in a previous job counseled several children who were abused. I want to increase the number of tools available to protect our kids from abuse. And I've encountered many subjects in my research who suffer from unwanted attractions and never want to harm a child. However, they're afraid to seek help because they're scared of the social reaction. And ultimately, getting these people access to help before they can hurt someone keeps more children safe. On Tuesday, Old Dominion released a statement that Walker was being put on leave, an action, quote, motivated by our obligation to maintain a safe and conducive learning environment for our students, faculty, and staff. Walker said this was their understanding of the reason as well, and not a result of the institution caving to outside pressure. I was hired at the time when I, when I was doing this research, said Walker. My job talk, the talk that I gave to the department, was about this research, and I already had a contract for this book by the time I walked in the door that they knew about. In a message to campus quoted by the Washington Post, ODU President Brian O'Hemphill said Tuesday, many individuals have shared with me the view that the phrase minor attracted people is inappropriate and should not be utilized as a euphemism for behavior that is illegal, morally unacceptable, and profoundly damaging. It is important to call pedophilia what it is. Of course, Walker's focus is not on illegal behavior, but the feelings that may precipitate it. They told Jezebel that they received an outpouring of support in the wake of this controversy, a backlash to the backlash, if you will. They said they hope to be back in the classroom soon, and from what they understand, other department faculty members have taken over teaching their classes for now. Walker said they stand by their work and research, regardless of the outrage. I think my expertise is valuable to ODU and really complements its very robust criminal justice program, said Walker. My research positions ODU to be at the forefront of developing effective ways to prevent child sexual abuse. Again, my book does not advocate for the normalization of sexual activity between adults and minors, and neither do I, under any circumstances, ever. So yeah, I'm hopeful that it will be understood. Again, that was a Jezebel interview with Dr. Alan Walker, written by Rich Jizwiak. In response to this controversy, a group of researchers, uh, myself included, led by Maggie Ingram um, of John Hopkins University, uh, all of us researched these topics. Um, we basically sent and published a letter uh, for the ODU and in response to this whole situation. 
The letter reads as follows. As researchers in the fields of sexual, sexual abuse prevention, mental health, and human sexuality, we affirm both our strong stance against the abuse of children and other vulnerable people, and our strong support for Professor Alan Walker, their important and groundbreaking research, and their freedom as an academic to explore topics that may spur controversy or discomfort. We can appreciate the need for ODU to respond to concerns from the public and the campus community. At the same time, the public backlash reflected a misunderstanding and mischaracterization of Walker's research. Our mission as academics is to counteract such misconceptions that hinder societal understanding of complex issues. We are strongly committed to creating a world without child sexual abuse. In order to accomplish this daunting goal, both ethically and effectively, it is essential to have a complete understanding of the issue, and this requires dissemination of research findings, even when they contradict popular assumptions. Important social issues cannot be addressed effectively when such findings are suppressed. For example, researchers such as Dr. Walker emphasize the distinction between attraction to children and sexual abuse of children. Not everyone who is attracted to children abuses children, and not everyone who abuses children is sexually attracted to children. Though these statements may be confusing or controversial to the public due to the conflation of attraction and abuse in public discourse, they are borne out in the community and the literature and widely supported by the community of scientists who have dedicated their lives and careers to the work of child sexual abuse prevention. We believe it is also essential to understand that people who are attracted to children usually realize they have such attractions when they are children themselves, often as young as 12 or 13. This realization can lead to severe anxiety, depression, social isolation, and suicidal ideation and behavior. We affirm the value and dignity of all children and youth, including those who are attracted to younger children. Any concern for the protection of children must include concern for the welfare of these youth in light of the extreme stigma and abusive attitudes they face from society. Therefore, we affirm the value of Dr. Walker's research in addressing unmet mental health needs which youth and adults attracted to children often have. Dr. Walker and others who do this work are simply advocating for compassionate responses to people who are living with an attraction to children that they did not choose and cannot change. Such compassionate responses should not be seen as an affront to prevention efforts. Rather, they strengthen prevention efforts by removing barriers to help-seeking and promoting protective factors that we know reduce people's risk of sexual offending, such as social connectedness and emotional health. It is widely recognized in prevention science that severely stigmatized people with addictions or other mental health issues which could contribute to emotional or physical abuse of children is counterproductive because it interferes with their ability to receive help. Similarly, it is possible and essential to condemn sexual abuse of children while acknowledging the harmful and counterproductive effects of the deeply ingrained misconceptions about people who are attracted to children. Destigmatization essentially involves increasing the public's understanding about the population being considered. Regarding those attracted to children, as we've seen evidence countless times over the last few days, the word pedophile is misused and misunderstood in public discourse as a synonym for someone who sexually abuses children. This pervasive misconception, including the ways in which it hinders prevention efforts, is exactly what Dr. Walker's research addresses. 
we urge you to consider the dire ramifications for academic freedom that would stem from setting the precedent of removing a professor from their position because the topic of their research is emotionally charged, uncomfortable to discuss, and difficult to understand. It is essential that universities educate their communities regarding the important role of academic freedom in promoting informed policies, addressing serious social issues, that they take a clear stand against the suppression or misrepresentation of such findings, and that they take action against those who disrupt educational and research aims by threatening violence towards scholars. Dr. Walker has been explicitly clear about their position that child sexual abuse is unacceptable and inexcusable. Given that we all share the same goal of preventing abuse, we respectfully urge you to support Dr. Walker's right to conduct research free from threats and harassment and reinstate them to their position of assistant professor, taking whatever actions are necessary to protect their safety and the safety of campus students and faculty. This would demonstrate ODU's commitment to both the prevention of child sexual abuse and to the academic freedom that is an essential tenet of any progressive society. <sighs> okay, so end of letter. With all of this in mind, the rest of the episode is a conversation featuring a minor attracted person named Richard Kramer of the organization referenced before called Before You Act. I hope all of this together helps you think a little differently about a complex topic that can be immensely triggering for many of us, as well as the impacts of shame, stigma, and fear on our culture. Thank you, slutty scholars, for your open hearts and minds. And now, on to the interview. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am welcoming Richard Kramer. He is the educational director for Before You Act, which is a nonprofit organization and collaborative effort of minor attracted people, mental health professionals, and researchers. The group's mission is to make mental health services that meet the needs of minor attracted people, also called MAPs or MAPs, accessible to those who need them. And MEP himself, Richard has been with the organization since 2006, leading in-person workshops and online educational meetings, speaking to university classes in mental health and human sexuality, and providing assistance for researchers who wish to study MAP-related issues. Side note, he's also been very helpful for me in my dissertation process. Um, over the years that I've been uh, trying to work on it, welcome, Richard. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, so uh, you may have, listeners out there, you may have listened to the podcast uh, a while back about minor attraction, but if you haven't, um, Richard, how do you define minor attraction? Well, I would define it as the predominant sexual and romantic or emotional attraction to people who are under the age of consent. I've met quite a few minor attracted people or people who identify as minor attracted, and they have attraction to adults to various degrees. But mm -hmm. I think what... Uh, what makes them self-identify that way is that these attractions to people under the age of consent are stronger than their attraction to adults and predominant. So, um, and these attractions typically involve an emotional or romantic component similar to what the, the attractions that most adults have for other adults. Yeah, and so just to point out for listeners too, I think, uh, and maybe you can speak to this, Richard, but a lot of ways that culture sometimes um, gets this a little bit wrong is they think anyone who's maybe uh, done something or a sexual offense with someone under 18, they immediately say pedophile. 
why is this maybe incorrect uh, and why is it important that we kind of utilize this different terminology of minor attraction? Well, there's at least, I would say, two reasons. One is the fact that this is a focus on what the attractions are. So I've had these feelings of attraction, you know, since I was a boy myself and have never acted on them. And so it doesn't imply any particular kind of behavior or even sort of character traits. It just implies having those attractions and to to assume that everybody who has those attractions has acted on them in, in a harmful or illegal way is does a disservice to to those people because it's um, you know it, it creates or contributes to animosity towards the people that have these attractions and the inability really for for us to address the issue in a productive ways. And another issue that comes up, another reason we use the term minor attraction is because clinically pedophilia refers to the attraction to prepubescent children. And um, prepubescents are generally, you know, under age 11 or 12, and you can debate the exact ages. But um, for myself, I don't, I'm not very much attracted to romantically or sexually to people under the age of puberty. So, um, so pedophilia, I don't feel really applies to me. Hebophilia mm-hmm. is a term that's often used for people who are attracted to people in the age group that I'm attracted to, um, you know, early adolescence. So and then the little- other, yeah, the other term that um, I've learned in my studies is a febophile or a febophilia, which is kind of interested in, in teens. Um, and that one I always find so interesting as grouped in minor attraction because, look, we live in this culture that um, fetishizes youth um, in a lot of ways and the, and the beauty of youth. And, and one of the most viewed porn categories is teen porn, or a lot of people out there are looking for young-looking people. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? Well, I guess I think maybe less about current trends and more about what what's evolutionarily adaptive and and mm. also what some of the research that i've seen shows that it's that the most commonly the most common age to which men at least adult men are attracted is somewhere around age 18 17 and that seems like it, that would make sense from an evolutionary perspective and so a febophilia if it's attraction to teenagers over age 15, which is how I understand it to be defined, that would seem to be quite common and, and quite normal if you could classify mm. things as normal or abnormal. So yeah. so it seems strange to single out ephebophilia as something as if it's uh, somehow unusual or abnormal. Yeah. And the way that you were describing minor attraction before, and research uh, actually is showing a lot of this now, that minor attraction actually um, seems to be a type of sexual orientation, or as we would call like an age-based orientation. Um, Do you feel that for you, it's been a sexual orientation and why? I would say that it's very similar to a sexual orientation. And there is a good bit of research out there that's finding that for at least a lot of people who identify as minor attracted, that seems to be the case in that uh, there's no choice in the matter. I certainly didn't choose to have these feelings. I discovered them, and I discovered them later than most minor attracted people do. It was in my early adulthood, but so many people I've met say they figured it out when they were still adolescents themselves, realized mm-hmm. that they were attracted to people younger than themselves predominantly or preferentially. 
and and these attractions are stable. Nobody's figured out a way to change them. I know that I tried actually at some point various mm. things and nothing really worked. Um, and there's also this romantic or emotional component to it, you know, feelings of falling in love with people. In fact, uh, I remember explaining this to somebody who was uh, very, he, he's a straight man that I got to know many years ago. And he was trying to be very understanding and open-minded. And he told me honestly that um, he didn't understand really what my attractions were about. And I told him simply that I fall in love with younger teenage boys. And when he, when I said that, he suddenly said, oh, now I understand. So the feelings of falling in love are part of it. And that's why, for me, it is pretty much like an orientation. We can quibble about what orientation means. You know, it has become a political term. So politically, it can't be said that I, that this is a sexual orientation, but from a, uh, subjective point of view and from how it works and how it feels, it is very much like an orientation. Yeah. And I mean, why do you think it is so hard? I have a lot of reasons and guesses that I would say based on my work. Um, and obviously I've kind of worked around in, uh, in this population for a while, but like, why do you think it's so hard for folks out there to believe that there are non-offending minor attracted people? Cause kind of like what you were saying earlier, there's this, uh, you know, there's this misnomer that if you have this interest that you will inevitably offend and um, are a ticking time bomb in some way to harm children. Right. Um, I think, well, this is in a way, it's a scientific question. One could actually study it, investigate it, I'm sure. So this is just my speculation, but I can come up with quite a few reasons that seem plausible. One is that there's such an extreme taboo about, well, sexual feelings in general, even today when people talk about uh, identifying as gay or lesbian or, or bisexual, these kinds of things, it's still taboo to talk very much about what those specific feelings are, what that means, actually. And so it's certainly a taboo for minor attracted people to talk about the fact that they are attracted to young people. So the only way that people find out that somebody is attracted to minors is usually when somebody does get arrested for mm -hmm. committing a contact or a non-contact crime. So yeah. that's the only way the public hears about it, for one. Um, another thing is that there sort of is an assumption in our society that everybody has to act on their sexuality, that it's somehow abnormal not to express your sexuality and that it would be cruel to expect somebody to remain celibate. And so we have this assumption that everybody acts on their sexuality. And so it's very unusual to, ex to expect somebody to believe that MAPs would not do so. Yeah, um, but we're not just like, let's say you find somebody hot at work. We're not just going around. I mean, some people are who are like, can't control themselves or sex offenders. We're not just going around like fucking everyone in our office that we find attractive. Right, right, right. exactly. And so um, uh, that's, that's exactly right. And that gets into the whole assumption that yeah, minor attracted people are necessarily violent or are going, going to force somebody to do something. And this is no, you know, we're no different from responsible behaving straight people or people who are attracted to adults. And, um, and, and another source of the problem, I think, is that a lot of our societal institutions continue to confuse the words, you know, pedophile with sex offender or child molester. They confuse child sexual abuse with pedophilia. They're not the same thing. But a lot of published articles in, in the media 
um, or even published by researchers, law enforcement people, they, they continue to promote these myths. And then there is still that segment of people that um, they're so disgusted by people who are attracted to minors that they, that I guess they need to justify their disgust by just promoting this belief that uh, mm -hmm. we're ticking time bombs and that we necessarily do act on it. And if we don't, we are lying. And I even believe that myth myself <laughs> when I was first figuring out about who I was and I was mm. looking on the internet for information, all I could find pretty much was um, information that was coming from credible sources saying that um, pretty much pedophiles, all pedophiles. And I assumed, even though I'm, I classify myself as a hebophile, I knew that they were talking about me when they used the term pedophile and they said that mm -hmm. they all abuse and, and even mental health organizations and child protection organizations were saying that at the time. And uh, so I believed it. And then I started to, to find out about other MAPs online that were not acting on their sexuality, who were not violating laws, who were not hurting children. And then I started, at first I thought, well, they're not being honest about it. You know, they're, they're just trying to put on a good front. And then I realized, well, I was pretty arrogant for myself to believe that I was the only one who was not acting on it. So, uh, so that is when my own view started to change. I don't know if you agree with this at all, and I haven't looked at this necessarily in the research uh, per se, but I'm thinking of like people who cheat on each other in a relationship or like, let's say there's a relationship going on and someone's really jealous and they think that their partner's cheating on them, even though they're not. And they keep accusing them over and over, mm -hmm. at least in clients that I've heard, that person who keeps getting accused is kind of like, well, I might as well fucking cheat if this person thinks I'm cheating all the time. Um, oh. I guess I am a cheater. And so I wonder, is do you feel like there is this like when you were feeling like maybe I am a ticking time bomb, um, not that you felt like you were at risk of offending, but do you think that affects people of like, well, why am I even, I don't know, why am I even doing this or e existing if, if everyone just thinks this of me anyway? Right. That's a plausible explanation of why somebody might do something that either that hurts themselves or hurts other people. Mm. Um, you know, if, if, if society is going to believe that that's what I am, I might as well do it. Um, it sort of doesn't make sense for a lot of, maybe most of us, for me certainly, because that's not the real reason that I haven't acted sexually with the child. You know, it's it's because, um, you know, I know the potential consequences, and so I would never risk it. I would, and of course, there's also the whole issue that I'm ex out, I'm outing myself if I were to do that. So my uh, whole life has been one of not <laughs> of keeping myself my sexuality secret. Yeah. Um, so the idea that, well, society thinks I'm a monster, they reject me, and so why should I even contribute to society? Why should I even try to control myself? If, if somebody does adopt that attitude, I think it's probably going to come out more in terms of hating society, showing anger, maybe doing mm -hmm. things that are antisocial to adults, or, or just yeah. withdrawing from society, rather yeah. than doing something harmful to a child. I don't think that's how it would happen, but I could be wrong. That's something that the research could look at. And I don't want to focus too much on offending because as you've said, I, I don't want to um, conflate the two too much because that's what a lot of folks do. And just to kind of cover that before we move into to your ex lived experience, um, what are some reasons that the research are showing that people do offend? So if it's not just minor attraction in and of itself, um, what does kind of lead a person to um, offend? 
Oh, um, in a way, I don't feel qualified to answer that question because that's not really the kind of research that I'm interested in. I haven't looked into that. Um, I mean, I could think of some explanations. I tend to to think that minor attracted people are like most other people. And so you could ask similar questions about other people. Why is it that some... Like, why does someone murder? Why does somebody right. do why, this? Why, mm. why do some people, when they're upset about something, why do they go and they commit aggravated assault? Or why mm. do some parents abuse their own children when others don't? Yeah. Um, you know, there are probably, I would guess, you could divide the reasons up into two kinds of reasons. One are the personal characteristics of the of the person. You know, some people have not developed the kind of empathy for others or the kind of consideration yeah, or, or responsibility. Yeah, narcissistic, antisocial traits. Right. Or, or even the lack of self-control somehow. Uh, and it might be, might be partially genetic or physiological. It might be partly uh, just their, their own development, their own... Um, the experiences they had through their childhood or as they were growing up, whatever mm -hmm. affects a person's attitudes, beliefs, behaviors. And then there are other kinds of things where good people do bad things, you know, where it's, it's a matter of circumstances, um, just trauma, right. And, uh, all manner of things. And so the idea that you can do research to determine some kind of essential difference between MAPs who have, acted on their sexuality or have who have abused children and those who have not i think that's sort of a flawed assumption that you could ever isolate you know some kind of limited number of of characteristics uh, of the uh, in the person um, unless you can do that with general people in general you know what's mm. again what's the difference between somebody who, who commits aggravated assault and somebody who doesn't you know a straight mm -hmm. person who rapes and a straight person who doesn't rape um mm. That's you an know, interesting way of re-narrating it. Yes. So, it, so looking for some kind of simple answer for the distinction yeah. is a way of saying that minor attracted people are different from normal people because we can't find that kind of simple answer for normal people. So why should we expect it with minor attracted people? Well, I think it's because of the, the fear, right? Of this fear mentality, like you were saying, of the ticking time bomb of like, how do we keep our children safe kind of fear. Right. So it's like needing, needing or wanting to know so that you can systemically avoid those people. Right. But I think we can apply what we know about, you know, from research on other kinds of criminal behavior to MAPs um, mm -hmm. or other kinds of life stressors that cause people. You know, what, what is it that causes a parent to horribly abuse their child physically or emotionally? And, yeah. uh, um and work on that. I think that's the best yeah. way to, to deal with minor attracted people. Yeah. Well, instead of just assuming that if you have the attraction, you are the enemy, it's looking at the real systemic complex intersections of what makes somebody harm others. Right. Right. Exactly. And so you said that's not your focus of research. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest issues then faced that you're wanting to look at for yourself and for other minor attracted folks through your organization? So I, um, my ideas, of course, come from a combination of my own experiences growing up as a minor attracted person, figuring this out about myself, as well as uh, minor attracted people I've spoken to through Before You Act and in other contexts. And I don't know if I can give them in any particular order of priority, but one of the biggest things for me, and I think a lot of minor attracted people, is this sort of uh, sense of 
deep shame about themselves, uh, self-hatred that's um, mm. really been internalized the, as a result of the stigma they, that we feel from society, identifying ourselves as monsters. And so... Well, and there's a lot of research on that, right? To show right, right. like how it affects somebody to live a life of sh- with intense shame and stigma and social isolation. Like that's dangerous. Right, right. Um, so that is an issue that a lot of minor attractive people deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and how to even function socially when you sort of feel like you're, you're a monster or you don't maybe uh, qualify as a human being. You shouldn't live. And we do get mm. this message quite a lot that we shouldn't be alive. And the message mm. doesn't just come from, you know, some ultra rabid um, opinionated uh, ideologue. Conservative, but, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah I, and I don't necessarily want to say that it's on one side of the political spectrum because we hear it yeah. from all sides of the political spectrum. Yeah. So it also yeah. comes, it's messages that come from law enforcement, that come from mm-hmm. journalism, that, that come from the mental health system. That, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think it's getting better, uh, a lot better in the past 10 years or so. But, you know, there were times where I would, there were there are books written by uh, well-known experts in the field of sex abuse prevention or child protection, books that equated predators with, with people who are attracted to children or um, that use that kind of terminology that said we must not tolerate pedophiles in, mm-hmm. at all. We must have zero tolerance for pedophiles. Well, I live, I'm alive, so what does that mean to not tolerate me? To, does that mean to lock me away or to kill me? Uh. Another issue we have is, it's, I mean, these issues are all closely related. It's hard to know where one ends and the other yeah. begins. But, but there's this constant fear of exposure and the need to live a double life and to keep your sexuality secret. Um, and mm-hmm. it does result in some, in a lot of inauthenticity, the inability to be authentic. So, for example, right now I've got a good colleague at my work who um, I think he's a good friend and he's outed himself as gay to me. And I sort of get the feeling that he expects me to be as forthcoming about my own sexuality. And I can't be. I don't feel it's safe to be. So, mm. you know, it's a sort of yeah, a, a so one- Yeah, so like it stops you from getting connected and vulnerable and, con- right. yeah, connected with people. Right. It's a one-sided relationship, but I feel sort of guilty that I can't uh, be as open with him as he is with me. And so there is this need for a double life and... He, I guess, has to believe that I'm asexual or something. You know, he's talked about his experiences with dating and he has asked me a little bit. And all I could say was, well, I've never been interested in dating and I don't think I ever will be. So, mm. um, so he yeah, does I imagine a-, a lot of people who are minor attracted kind of use asexuality as a, a bit of a shield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's difficult to be close to somebody uh, and in your family also, so it's hard to have close friendships or mm. supportive friendships or family members that you, know, you can, you know, siblings or parents that you can be close to. Uh, some yeah. minor attractive people have done that, and I haven't felt comfortable doing it except a couple times with some, uh, with one very close friend many years ago. But he has, he and I have moved to different geographical locations of the country, and so we don't have that supportive relationship. I do have a small number of minor attracted people who are good friends. That one who lives about an hour away, a few others that live various distances and we keep in touch on a regular basis by phone or visiting each other so i do have that um 
And yeah, how how do you and maybe some of these friends and colleagues you're describing get your needs met relationally with all of these um, limitations? That's yeah, that's a hard question. So that is, um, you know, it, it's very limited in terms of having a supportive, emotional, close relationship with other people. You know, and and part of the issue, and this gets back to the need for mental health services, is when you have the feeling you're told your whole life that you have this severe flaw in who you are and therefore you're sort of monstrous that you can't you're not really a lovable person and your sense of love and intimacy is monstrous you know because mm. our sexuality at least for me and i think most minor attracted people this is what it means to be an orientation i think is that our sexuality is closely connected to our feelings of love and intimacy Okay, I know today's topic is a little more on the serious side, so don't forget to take care of yourself after by checking out the awesome advertisers and sweet discounts on my favorite products. Firstly, get that 30-day free extended trial with Dipsy at dipsystories.com slash S and S. Dipsy Stories is an app full of sexy audio stories, and now they even feature new written stories. They have a diverse selection so you can explore your fantasies in a shame-free way. They release new content every week, and even if you're not wanting to get in the sexy mood, remember you can also wind down to their sleep sessions before bed, nap, or just self-care time. I am a huge fan of Dipsy, and I am so excited to check out some of their new written content. Remember, we all need ways to invite desire into our lives, so don't just depend on your partner to turn you on. For listeners of the show, Dipsy, again, is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S and S. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash S a-N-D-S, dipsystories.com slash S and S. And while you're at it, check out my favorite tools from Satisfier. Satisfier is offering our lucky listeners 30% off any Satisfier when you go to satisfier.com and enter code S and S 30 at checkout. Sometimes my intention in using my Satisfier is just for pleasure and fun and escape from reality. Sometimes it's to help me feel better in my body. And sometimes it's just an extra tool to use with a partner. The options are endless. Satisfier makes beautiful vibrators and air pulse stimulators with cutting edge technology at pretty affordable prices, especially with that discount. Satisfier has Bluetooth abilities so you can connect to your device and even share it with a partner. In these crazy times, distance often disconnects people, but Satisfier's app lets you control each other's pleasure devices, privately message, and see each other's responses in real time. And get this, you can even fuck your favorite song. The music play feature allows you to connect to Apple Music or Spotify, and your connected device will respond to the beat of the music. Or if your favorite song is your partner's voice, the ambient sound feature will pick up the vibes of their voice. Right now, I'm really liking the dual pleasure, but seriously, each new device that comes out is even better experience for me. So Satisfier, again, is offering 30% off any Satisfier when you go to Satisfier.com and enter code S&S30 at checkout. Again, if you're looking for one of your favorite new devices, go to S-A-T-I-S-F-Y-E-R.com and use code S&S30 for 30% off. Okay, lastly, if you just want some amazing lube refills, remember to check out Uber Lube. 
UberLube is a luxurious, high-grade silicone lubricant made from clean, body-friendly ingredients. It's just silicone with a little vitamin E. The vitamin E leaves a velvety finish that actually moisturizes your skin. And right now, they're offering listeners that 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. UberLube is for everyone. Thousands of doctors recommend UberLube as their go-to solution for patients experiencing dryness. Remember to go to a doctor, obviously, if you're worried about dryness. But with UberLube's simple ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to other lubricants. But also remember that dryness doesn't have to mean that anything is wrong. You can be totally aroused and feeling desire, and sometimes your body just needs a little extra help. So if you're also a human being, invest in some lube. UberLube offers long-lasting performance when you want it, then quickly dissipates without leaving a sticky residue. Feels like a nice moisturizer whenever you're finished. I have one all over my house, on my purse, on my bedside table. Um, I even sometimes just use it as a moisturizer for my hands. Um, and right now they're offering listeners special 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use promo code S&S at uberlube.com. Now back to the episode. Well, and this is, this is the piece that always makes me like, you can maybe even see right now as we're talking, like that always makes me tear up. And this is why I got interested in this uh, subject because we had somebody come talk to one of my classes in my um, PhD program, or I guess it was my master's of education program at the time, who was a non-offending self-identified minor attracted person. And they said that they'd been looking for a therapist for like 10 years and couldn't find anyone who had the training or was willing to work with them, didn't mm -hmm. offer, and no one would offer referrals. And I thought to myself, like how important my uh, sexual, sexual and relational expression is to me. And I like was, I like cried about it because I was like, I can't imagine if I had even more barriers or even more shame, um, attached to being able to explore those things for myself and not having support. Like it's in, it's inhumane. Right. Um, so yeah, so, uh, I always got that message that I was unlovable and unloving. I was incapable of loving. My sense of love was totally screwed up. <laughs> and so um, I couldn't ever love somebody. And I didn't even realize that I had these feelings of romantic attraction until I was able to accept myself as a minor attracted person. And I, I, it was really parallel to figuring out that I was gay at first. So my first um, realization that sexuality was a significant issue for me was when I was 11 years old and I noticed that I was attracted to boys and men instead of girls and women. And so I self-identified as gay, but I had no idea that gay people could fall in love. This was in the 1970s. And so I thought, and I even found this book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex. <laughs> My parents mm. apparently kept it uh, in... Uh, in the on the bookshelf in the living room and i had never noticed it before and my in sister, the hopes of you finding it so they didn't I, have I, to talk to you about sex i guess that's what it was i don't know but uh, i found this book and i my first thought was okay i want to see what if it says anything about homosexuality and sure enough and this is a famous book you know and um found this chapter on homosexuality and it was awful absolutely awful it was there was no mention of romantic feelings or being able to fall in love it was just about sort of bizarre um 
deviant desires is, and behaviors is what it was about. And, mm. and so it made me more depressed even. And this was at age, I don't know how, when I found the book, but it was probably a couple years after I identified myself as gay. So the point was though, that I had no idea that gay people could even fall in love. And I, I didn't have any sense that I could either. And then I went through the same feelings when I labeled myself as uh, minor attracted. I labeled myself as a pedophile. You know, I had no idea that involved anything other than abusive, evil desires and destructive behavior until I did find online many years later when I got on the internet and discovered some uh, websites put up written by minor attracted people, but also links to articles, uh, uh, books and articles that were scientific, that were written by researchers that were not part of the uh, forensic sexology world. So they were non-forensic researchers, and they were studying it from a more of a... And for folks who don't know, forensic would be like people who are incarcerated? Right. Well, forensic researchers, forensic sexologists are mainly people who study and work with sex offenders, people who have violated yeah. sex laws. Mm -hmm. and um, And so... This was, it's a very narrow field and it specializes mainly on, you know, controlling sexual behavior and rather than on really human sexuality in general. And so, so when I found these non-forensic studies of minor attracted people that were from the point of view of actually trying to understand minor attracted people, their sexuality and their mental health, as opposed to trying to control them and prevent them from offending, uh, then these articles and books were much more humane. I actually felt like a human being when I started to read them. The forensic research made me feel like a monster and a non-human and not, almost an animal. And mm -hmm. because the way they talked about me, deviant sexual arousal and this kind of thing. And so these books, uh, these new articles and these personal stories of minor attracted people were so different and so positive. That's when I started to feel good about them myself. But that kind of research is hard to find still. And it, I don't think it's part of therapeutic approaches to, to working with minor attracted people, but it could be. There are some authors that have written from outside the sex offending perspective. And that's what we really need, I think. Though, I, I mean, I know I've uh, come across this in my own dissertation research and things, but um, because of so many people needing and wanting to stay anonymous for fear of being outed, I do imagine it's a difficult um, population to research because of, of that fear mm -hmm. for people who are not in the uh, forensic population. Right, right. But what's really nice is that now that we have the internet, it's a lot easier to do that kind of research. On, anonymously. You know, anonymously on all kinds of, of sort of hidden populations. And, mm -hmm. and so it's, it's becoming a lot more frequent that researchers are, are doing this kind of non-forensic research. And that's uh, yeah. a wonderful improvement. You know, as I think about the kinds of mental health needs that MAPs have, I think a lot about alienation from family and friends, community and society that I sort of alluded to earlier. And I think that's a big issue because when people are not feeling a part of their community or part of society, they lose uh, a will or desire to live or desire to to contribute positively. So mm -hmm. I think that's a real need that many minor attractive people we see have. Um, a lot of frustration that I had and still have when I hear people say things about pedophiles or when I hear 
uh, things coming from the media, the mental health system, even about pedophiles, and they're wrong, but we can't speak up. So that creates a lot of frustration and anger, I think. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, if we do speak up, then the question is, why do we know so much about it? Why, why, why are we defending these evil monsters? And so it's sort of a, uh, you must be one of those monsters. Um, yeah. Oh, I've, I've gotten it too. I mean, I've had people you know, tell me to kill myself or, um, you know, call me all sorts of like stupid fucking bitch, cunt, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, supporter of, you know, you want to hurt children, um, for, for researching or even broaching these topics. But that's why I think it's important that we talk about it because clearly it elicits this and how are we going to change things systemically if we can't talk about it? Well, and I think that's where it, it, we can point out a distinction between wanting to protect children and just sheer hatred because there are a lot of dangers to children. There are a lot of people who do horrible things to children and the kind of attacks that you've gotten and that minor attractive people can get are not the kind of attacks that people level against other people who harm children, like people like drunk drivers or drug pushers or, or, um, you know, people who just who physically or emotionally abuse children. There's quite mm-hmm. a lot of that that happens in families, outside of families. And yet you don't hear that kind of vitriol and hatred for those kinds of uh, pe- people who harm children in those ways. But we do hear, we used to hear that kind of vitriol for gay people or for um, Japanese Americans during World War II. You know, there are there are histories of that kind of hatred for various other groups of people. And it has been couched in child protection. I mean, a lot of people who hate gay people say it's because gay you're going to make them gay. Yeah. You're going to, or you're going to, you're also going to assault them. Yeah. Or recruit children into the gay lifestyle and it's harmful to children. And so the, the protection of children is often used. Certainly Ku Klux Klan members would probably say that, you know, we don't want, I don't want my children being harmed by black people, you know? So, so Mm. that's historically been a way to justify hatred and bigotry. So that's when, when people start behaving in that way, that's when I think that we can easily dismiss that as hatred. That's, that's not something that we need to give a lot of credibility to. I don't think. What are some other myths that you'd like people that you'd like to dispel or some other things that you'd like folks to understand about you? I know you can't speak for every minor attracted person, but for you or folks that you've spoken to, like what are what are some other myths you want people to understand um, and dispel? Well, I think it's basically one big super myth is that minor attracted people are somehow fundamentally different from other people. And, and that's not true. So there's this myth that minor attracted people are somehow more violent or more selfish or aggressive. And that's simply not true. And then there's, there is a good bit of non-forensic research that's been done over the decades that dispels that myth. Um, mm-hmm. We, just like any, anybody else in any other, any other sexual orientation or walk of life, you know, people vary. Minor attracted people people vary in their personalities, their interests, their characters, their motives. So yes, there are some minor attracted people who have bad motives and who lack self-control or who have violent tendencies. But I don't think there's any reason to expect that they would be a larger proportion than the proportion of straight people, gay people that have those kinds of negative personality characteristics. Um, another myth would be that our sexuality is just some kind of weird deviant 
urges uh, instead of being, you know, connected to feelings of love and attraction. Um, that when minor attracted people want to be caring towards other people, want to get involved in their communities or have social interactions with other people, the myth is, oh, they're just doing that so they can gain access to children to abuse them. Well, mm -hmm. that's no more true than anybody who's getting involved in their community because they want to rape a woman or something like that. So uh, minor attracted people's motives are the same as others, and other people have mixed motives. Minor attracted people can have mixed motives too, some good, some bad. Um, the, uh, and another myth is that minor attracted people are all you know, old people, adults. And that's simply not true. This is why it is similar to an orientation in that most minor attracted people, based on a survey we conducted before you act conducted a number of years ago and some more recent research, most minor attracted people remember figuring this about out about themselves when they were in adolescence themselves. Mm. So Yeah, like oh. they, they had the attraction to the same age peers and then the attraction didn't change as they aged. Right. Or, well, in my case, it was really strange because my attraction seemed to older people seemed to fade. So when I was 11 or 12, I had attractions to peers as well as older boys and men, um, adult men up to like maybe 30s or so. And apparently by high school, by my last year or so of high school, those attractions had faded because I noticed that boys that were in my own class I no longer found them to be attractive, and I would have found 16 or 17-year-olds attractive when I was in middle school, but I no longer did, and so they mm -hmm. seemed to fade, and so the signs were there when I was 16 or 17. I didn't really become conscious that that was a, a trend in myself until I was in my mid-20s, but a lot yeah. of MAPs are figuring that out at younger ages, and if, if they are really attracted my, primarily to prepubescent children, they would notice that early earlier, most likely, it seems plausible, they could notice that as young as 12 or 13 or 14, when their peers are talking about girls or boys in their own classes, these kids are noticing, they're, they're wondering, I don't find these peers attractive, but, you know, the some of the elementary schoolers I do find attractive. So, that, you know, so what we've got is kids figuring this out in high school, and maybe even younger, sometimes in middle school. And so if we think about that, according to statistics I've seen, nobody really knows, but anywhere between 1% and 5% of males have uh, preferential or primary attraction to underage people, high schoolers or middle schoolers or, or younger, then um, in a typical high school, you know, with about a thousand students or so, five hundred or boys, uh, you could expect maybe about five of them are realizing this about themselves. So mm. they're and in, I imagine numbers are higher than what's reported in the research because people are afraid to say anything. And if it is, you know, really following the thing of an orientation, um, most orientations are a spectrum. And right, so right. I would also say that, you know, I think you would agree that minor attraction is potentially a spectrum where you may have some level of interest. Um, and yeah, there are adults who have some equally uh, an equal interest in other adults as they do in minors. Um, and it's a it's a spectrum. Right, right. And uh, oh, I've met so many. Uh, minor attracted people that have so many different sort of configurations of attractions that mm. there's there's a lot of spectra. There's the gender spectrum and there there's age spectra, and and some minor attracted people have different 
age attractions depending on whether it's male or female. Um, so yes, some people have a lot of attraction to adults, but even more attraction to maybe teens, underage teens, and then very little attraction to prepubescence. And for some people, it's the other way around and um, all kinds of combinations. So sexuality, of course, it's, it's not surprising sexuality would be so varied since uh, variation is endemic to uh, to evolution and how how yeah. how humans are as well as other organisms. And um, I imagine it's, I mean, I think I'm noticing this for myself too, but because of the topic, um, I imagine it's difficult to have conversations about this that don't feel very serious. I know you and I have talked about this before the interview, and I do want to invite in some area of like um, play and pleasure. So whether it's your your own experience or friends and colleagues that you've met, um, how have you seen people get some of their sexual, relational, romantic needs met um, in a pleasurable somewhat fulfilling way, um, in a way that's legal and ethical? Well, um, that's a, it's a really good question. Of course, I've met a few MAPs who have attractions to some adults and the, of course, the issue, the difficulty there can be finding an, uh, an adult partner who is open, who is able to accept this, but of course. Yeah, and like when to when to tell them and how to talk right. about it is something I've worked on with clients. Right, that's that's a big issue that uh, therapists can work with MAPs on. That wouldn't work for me because I don't have any romantic or um, emotional uh, or sexual attractions to adults that I could really work on. But, you know, so those who do, sometimes they can, I guess, engage in age play, as I understand that can be a very positive mm -hmm. thing. And, and if you're curious about that, go back to the episode uh, with James and Anna um, earlier on in the podcast archives uh, of Sluts and Scholars to uh, get a perspective on that. But, okay, so we've got age play. Now, for myself and some MEPs I know, it's it's mainly fantasy. We, we have a, a very enriched, fant a rich fantasy life. I was going to say, do you think there's a way to be sex positive and not advocate for child-adult relationships? Well, um, I guess it depends what you mean by sex positive. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, sex, so. Sex positivity is a very, at least I think it's a very personal subjective thing. And so mm -hmm. I don't think there is. I don't think I can be completely positive about my sexuality if I can't, can't act on it. You know, I mean, how, how can your sexuality be positive if you know that acting on it would be destructive? Mm. So I don't think, yeah. I don't think it's possible. Well, I do. I know you said it's hard to not have that shame, you know, when you're talking to anyone, not minor attracted, but I am super grateful that you took the time to, to talk to me uh, and our listeners about this. Um, I think it's an important topic and, and I do think it can be applied to any other feelings of, obviously this is a very different, um, you know, orientation and subject, but just like, as you were saying, anything that is shame-based or taboo-based, um, I think there's so many wonderful things here. So um, if people are interested in learning more about Before You Act and the research and the work that you do and what's out there, um, how can folks uh, get in touch and check out the organization? Okay. Um, I did want to say a little bit about what, what Before You Act does. Uh, but to find information, you can, of course, go to our website, beforeyouact.org, 
And it's just the letter B, the number four, and then the letter UACT.org, one word. And and yes, say what say what before you act uh, does. I know we said a little in the intro, but um, what can folks expect from uh, this group? So we, we have quite a few different projects and activities going on, but I like to divide them into sort of uh, three or four groups, maybe based on the the in- intended audience. So one audience, the the original intended audience for our organization was the mental health profession, where. Um, we really wanted to create a collaboration with mental health providers and to help them learn more about minor attracted people and help minor attracted people learn more about mental health services that might be available. But we knew that we needed to develop those mental health services and develop sort of a group of, of therapists and other professionals who are able to provide these services. So um, the activities that we do in that regard are we have an annual in-person workshop, which of course has been put on hold for the last couple of years due to COVID. We hope to resume those soon. We haven't decided exactly when, but we, we have been having annual in-person workshops, day-long workshops located in Baltimore, Maryland, since we're based in Maryland. We also have monthly online meetings where mental health professionals and minor attracted people, as well as researchers and other interested people, educators, graduate students can come to just discuss issues related to therapy and mental health services for minor attracted people. And those groups of people are also at, uh, attend our workshops. We have a therapist referral program where uh, a minor attracted person who wants to find a therapist can come to us and be referred to one. It's a small list of therapists we have, but it's growing. And so therapists who want to join our list, it's a, a private confidential list. So your name would not be publicized, but they can contact us to uh, to look into joining our list. Um, another group of people we work with is researchers. And so um, we have a we also have monthly online meetings where researchers can network and talk about their research. We have a, an email group for researchers. We also publish a quarterly review of cutting edge research that's coming out about minor attracted people. And um, we have had in the past a couple in-person research focused conferences. We've had two so far. Uh, as opposed to our more clinically oriented therapy-related workshops. So the the research colloquia have been more focused on published papers or discussing research progress. And then a a third group of projects is really related to minor-attracted people themselves. We have an online peer support group for minor-attracted people. It's password-protected. We also have a small friends and family support group for friends and family members of minor-attracted people. And then we have the more general public that we, of course, hope to reach out to, including journalists and um, people who want to just develop maybe programs to reach out to minor attracted people. So we have a we have a newsletter that we publish um, semi-annually, although we hope it'll become more frequent. We also have a website with plenty of information directed towards, you know, all kinds of uh, people, whether they're, again, journalists or researchers or therapists or other people. Um, we like to, we collaborate with, I w- wanted to say also that we do quite a bit of collaboration with researchers on developing their project ideas. We've also developed or worked with people who are trying to develop interventions to reach out to minor attractive people, especially young 
uh, might attract people, you know, young adults or even teenagers that are figuring this out about themselves. Because there's mm-hmm. really nothing out there for underage teenagers who are attracted to are younger, just discovering young, this younger for the children. First time. There's nothing yeah. there for them at all. It's very difficult because of the whole issue of them being underage themselves, parental consent or, yeah. you know, legal issues. So that's a really difficult areas to, to work with. So, um, oh, yeah. but we are trying to work with anybody who's trying to develop programs or do research that we can assist them recruiting subjects for their research or just helping them to develop research project ideas, research questions, or working on their surveys to develop surveys that would be more sensitive to the situation minor tract people avoid stigmatizing or offensive language or assumptions, hidden assumptions that a lot of people do have that we can yeah. help help them overcome those sort of hidden assumptions. You do so much, and the website is very informative. And if you go to the contact part of our website, you can find a few contacts depending on what your interest is in a reason for contacting us. Oh, Richard, thank you. I know that you and I could talk about this on and on, and, and maybe I'll have to come back and talk more. And I hope that this was enlightening for folks listening and that you will get some more information, educate yourself. Yeah, send this to other folks who you think would benefit. And again, if you want to follow what I'm doing here on the podcast, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. And obviously, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to rate and review and always check out those advertiser discounts because the more you support the advertisers, the more you support the podcast. Uh, But Richard, thank you so much for joining and talk to you all next week. Well, I thank you so much for all you're doing, too. We need more therapists and researchers to do the kind of work that you're doing related to minor attractive people. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you.